You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen. Last time, we got Nansen home from a successful crossing of Greenland, making him the first person to ever accomplish that momentous task. Nansen was now famous, the toast of Europe. He had a new position at Christiana University as the curator of the zoological collection, but there were no real responsibilities associated with it. He got a nice paycheck, the university got his name. It would give the 27-year-old Nansen a bit of financial security, but it's not like he was rich. So, it was the summer of 1889. Nansen would head off to do some lectures about his Greenland crossing in Edinburgh and London, meeting with the Prince of Wales, a.k.a. future King Edward VII, and members of the Royal Geographical Society. The latter would give Nansen their prestigious Founders Medal, the Society's president saying that he had moved to, quote, the foremost place amongst northern travelers, end quote. The main thing for Nansen was to start to gather his thoughts on a book about the Greenland expedition. But awards and books aside, the thing that captured Nansen's attention at this time was a woman. As a note, Nansen had always been enamored with women, and they with him. He had had a long string of female friends and relationships, which would continue throughout his life. Before departing on the Greenland expedition, he had reportedly been involved with Dagmar Engelhardt, reputedly one of the most beautiful women in Christiania. And so it was with more than a bit of shock that in August of that year, Nansen would announce his engagement, but not to Engelhardt. Instead, it was to Ava Sars. To say the couple's relationship was a whirlwind affair was an understatement. They would meet, get engaged, and marry all within a few months. And the union was even more surprising to Nansen's friends and colleagues, as he had often expressed skepticism, if not outright hostility, towards the institution of marriage. Ava, three years older than Nansen, was short with dark hair, a contrast to her husband. She was a professional singer, a mezzo-soprano, who had a growing reputation in Europe. Thus, she was an independent woman, having carved out a career for herself. It is said that she captured Nansen's attention due to her skiing abilities, with Nansen calling her the best female skier in Norway. A few things about the couple's relationship. First, it will be a tumultuous union. Nansen had numerous affairs in his lifetime, and Ava was constantly fighting to keep his eyes on her and their home. In fact, Ava's parents had disapproved of the marriage, as they thought Nansen would never be able to settle into a conventional life. He was a man of too many interests, and not just women. Second, Nansen, despite all of his philandering, would forever express his affection for Ava, and he seems to have missed her tremendously when they were apart. No matter, it makes for an awkward, and at times, messy marriage. I'll touch on this throughout the rest of the series, but know that I will share only a fraction of the drama that surrounded Nansen's personal life. And so, Nansen was married. Aside from that, he now had two major things on his plate. The first was his book on the Greenland Expedition, and the second was his plan on another epic feat of exploration. For the latter item, Nansen wanted to be the first man to reach the North Pole. Let's deal with the book first. Nansen's book, The First Crossing of Greenland, would be published in 1890, 
It was a large, more than a thousand pages, two-volume set. The book would actually only spend about a third of the pages on the actual crossing of Greenland. The rest was on topics such as the life of the Inuit and seal hunting. As a note, Samuel Baltu, the Sami who had been with Nansen on the Greenland crossing, would write his own book about the expedition. Nansen would even quote Baltu's book in his own. Nansen's book would be a success, and he would receive 7,000 krona for his efforts. The funds would allow Nansen to purchase a home for himself and Eva. And that takes us to our second item, the North Pole. The lure of the Arctic was not far from Nansen's mind. In fact, for years he had been concocting a rather bold plan to reach the Pole. In February 1890, he would announce that plan at the meeting of the Norwegian Geographical Society. The idea was actually pretty simple. Take a ship to the waters off of Siberia, let it get frozen in, and then have the ice drift take the ship to the North Pole. Or at least close enough that a team could do a quick dash from the ship to the Pole. He finished the presentation by saying, quote, May Norwegian show the way. May it be the Norwegian flag that first flies over the Pole. End quote. Now, we need to do some background here before we just run off and start getting an expedition ready. Because you are probably saying, what the heck? Just drifting the ice to the pole? Is that real? Well, that is what we will talk about now. The genesis of Nansen's plan begins in 1879 when an American ship, the Jeanette, set out to reach the North Pole. The ship went through the Bering Strait, which divides Alaska and Russia. The ship would get trapped in the ice and drift west for two years before being crushed off the Siberian coast. 20 of the 33 crew would die. Side note here, I will cover the Jeanette expedition someday as it's a great story. Side note done. So the Jeanette sinks, and that's the last we hear of her, correct? Well, no, and that's because in 1884, three years after sinking, items from the ship would be found on the southeast coast of Greenland. This was thousands of miles from where the Jeanette had gone down. How was this possible? Well, the theory that was proposed was that there was an east-to-west current that carried across the Arctic Ocean from the area where the Jeanette went down, which was the East Siberian Sea, to Greenland. This theory is actually correct. There is a specific current, now called the Transpolar Drift Stream, that goes from the waters of northern Russia to Greenland. Our key thing here is that the drift doesn't go directly over the North Pole. You get close, but in reality, it skirts north of the landmasses, mostly archipelagos, of the area. This includes the New Siberian Islands, the Severnaya Zemlya Islands, the islands of Franz Josef Land, and Spitsbergen. I put a map of all this on our website, explorespodcast.com. So what Nansen and others were suggesting was that if you let yourself get frozen into the ice at the right spot, the natural drift of the ice would take you close to the North Pole. Now, some real big questions here. First, this assumes that there is no solid land in the north, like at the South Pole, as a continent doesn't drift. But based on the information available, Nansen believed that the Arctic was only a frozen pack of ice, not a solid mass of land. Yes, there were some islands here and there, but the transpolar drift stream demonstrated nothing significant. Second, how long would it take to drift across the Arctic Ocean? I mean, the relics from the Jeanette had taken three years to reach Greenland. Was that normal? What if the time frame varied? What if a ship took five or more years? Third, as noted, exactly how close did the drift get to the North Pole? Again, a huge question. Any expedition would not only have to be frozen into the ice, but have to, at some point, probably strike out on foot across the Arctic ice cap to actually reach the Pole. No one knew how far such a journey would be. Fourth, what if the whole transpolar drift theory was wrong? I mean, maybe the Jeanette relics got to Greenland in some other fashion. 
Well, if that was the case, that might doom everyone who took part in such an endeavor. And finally, if you believe the transpolar drift stream theory was correct and were willing to live on the Arctic ice for two, three, four years, how can you manage that? Ships just didn't survive that long on the ice. The constant pressure they have to endure eventually crushes them. And this takes us back to Nansen's plan. He proposed building a small, strong ship that would not get crushed in the ice. And how was that possible? Well, in theory, the idea was to build a ship that would get pushed upward as the ice pressed in. Think of it this way. Let's say you have a bowl, one you use for eating cereal or soup. Let's put that bowl in a pond of water. As the pond freezes over, the ice forms around the bowl. The colder it gets, the thicker the ice gets. Over time, the ice presses harder and harder against the bowl. And when the pressure gets too much for the bowl, it does what? Well, in theory, it gets pushed upward. This is because of the curved shape of the bowl. The bowl isn't trying to resist the pressure of the ice. It's going with the flow, so to speak, and just slides upward as the ice pushes inward. When the ice melts, the bowl is lowered right back down into the water. Again, that's in theory. Nansen's proposal would generate all sorts of opinions. Some people thought it was absolutely nuts. They doubted the transpolar drift theory, and they said a person would be crazy to purposely get frozen into the Arctic ice. It was a disaster waiting to happen. No ship could withstand the pressure of the polar ice for such a long time. American polar explorer Adolphus Greeley, whose team held the farthest north record at this time, would say the plan was, quote, an illogical scheme of self-destruction, end quote. But there were others who embraced Nansen's bold plan of using the forces of nature to execute his goals. Baron Oscar Dixon, a Swede, called Nansen's plan, quote, grand and brilliant, end quote. He was so enthralled by Nansen's ideas, he offered to finance the entire expedition, which would cost upwards of 300,000 krona. As a comparison, the total cost of Nansen's Greenland expedition was around 10,000 krona, or one-thirtieth of the price. Now, Nansen could have taken the money and been done, but as with his previous endeavor, he wanted this to be an extension of Norwegian nationalism. He was determined to make it an all-Norwegian affair, including the financing, if possible. The threat of foreign money would spur the Norwegian government into action. They would approve a grant of 200,000 krona for a polar expedition. The remaining 100,000 would be raised by private donations. And thus, Nansen would get his Norwegian money. Next, he needed to get a ship, which was the most critical element of the entire expedition. For that, he would turn to Colin Archer, one of Norway's most distinguished ship architects and builders. Archer was on the cutting edge of shipbuilding theory and was famous for making ships to exact specifications. Nansen would visit the man in Lavik, Norway in late 1890. Archer was hesitant to get involved, but curious about Nansen's idea. In the end, he would agree to build the vessel. The resulting ship would be unlike anything ever constructed. The ship, which would be named Fram, which means forward in Norwegian, was not large. It measured 128 feet long by 36 feet wide. That's 31.5 by 11 meters. The unique thing about the Fram was its rounded hull. A ship is naturally curved, but Fram was exceptionally so. The idea was that when the ice pushed in on the sloping sides of the ship, it would force the ship upward instead of just pressing against the hull and crushing it. As a note, the Fram still exists today. There's an entire museum in Oslo dedicated to the ship and polar exploration. I put a link to it on our site and in the show notes. I recommend taking a look. Anyhow, Colin Archer would put all of his thoughts and design skills into constructing from. The wood was critical. The keel was made of American elm, the frames of oak, grown to shape, and 30 years aged. The stem, which is the curved edge stretching from the keel below up to the upper edge of the ship, was made of three massive oak timbers. 
The deck was of Norwegian pine, while the outer planking was doubled and made of oak. To top it off, the outer planking was sheathed in a layer of South American greenheart, one of the hardest timber types in the world. The ship's thickness ranged from about 2 to 2.5 feet, or 60 by 75 centimeters, but at the bow, which is the front of the ship, it was 4 feet thick, or 1.25 meters. Diagonal braces were used to reinforce the hull internally, and inside there were three layers of paneling, two filled with cork shavings, felt, and reindeer hair. This would give the ship extra insulation, which was critical for the survival of the men who would have to live on the ship for years. The Fram was rigged as a three-masted schooner and had a state-of-the-art 220-horsepower engine capable of seven knots. There was even a windmill to run a generator, which would provide power for electric lamps. The end result was a stubby-looking ship. The key design element was the ship's roundness. No matter how strong a ship is, it will eventually buckle under the power of the ice cap. The rounded hull would allow the ship to evolve with its environment and, hopefully, survive. It was really quite amazing, as there was no real established rules or examples to draw upon. I talk a lot about Fromm because it's very important to our story, and I think it reflects Nansen's thought process. Remember on the Greenland expedition, he had used custom-designed sledges, skis, clothing, and other gear. He looked at his environment and worked to adapt to that world. So often humans try and do things the other way around, and it often means failure. So with the ship being constructed, Nansen would have a million other things to do to make the expedition a reality. He had to get provisions and gear, hire a crew, and solidify his plans. By the way, his goal was to set out in 1892, but delays would force him to wait until the following year. But before we get into the planning of the expedition, let's take a moment to talk about some things going on in Nansen's life. First item, Nansen would have other opportunities at this time. An Australian group asked him to lead an expedition to the South Pole, he felt it could easily be achieved using skis and dogs, and Nansen's experience on a snow-capped landmass would have made him a perfect leader. But he would pass, saying that the North Pole, due to its proximity, was the important goal for his nation. However, he did express interest in a South Pole expedition after the North Pole was conquered. His dream was to be the first man to both poles. Anyhow, one of the reasons for Nansen delaying his expedition by a year was money. He had a nice salary, but it was not that much. He and his wife had a new home, and he was constantly traveling. In all honesty, he was living beyond his means. As a result, he would hit the lecture circuit, at one point giving 21 lectures in 29 days. It made him some decent cash, but it was exhausting. Plus, Nansen found it boring. Telling the same stories over and over was not something a man like him wanted to be doing. Second item, his wife would give birth to a stillborn baby, casting a gloom over him and Ava's lives. Add in rumors of infidelity, and Nansen's home life was anything but calm. To be honest, Nansen and his wife would have a somewhat tortured relationship. Nansen was moody, naturally argumentative, and didn't like to compromise. She would work hard to manage his moods, but it wasn't always easy. The two relished each other's company, but travel and demands on Nansen kept him away, which upset both of them. Nansen was always writing to Ava and saying how much he missed her. It would send him into bouts of depression. As for Ava, she dreaded losing him. She had heard the rumors of his flings, and every time he traveled, those fears only grew. On the flip side, after recovering from the stillbirth, she got back into singing and started to give singing lessons. Also, whenever possible, she joined Nansen when he traveled, which helped both of them. However, one thing she dreaded was Nansen heading off on his expedition. She knew he would be gone for years. That idea scared both of them. Okay, let's put that stuff aside and get back to Nansen's proposed polar expedition eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Nansen's goal was to reach the North Pole. Here are the details of his plan. The team would consist of only about a dozen men, specialists at their jobs. Again, Nansen was eschewing the traditional approach of dozens or even hundreds of men on this kind of endeavor. Now, the initial idea was to sail all the way around South America and come up to the Bering Strait, just like the Jeanette had done a decade earlier. The idea was to follow in the footsteps of the ship, but Nansen would make a change to this part of the plan. His ship would instead sail up the Norwegian coast and go east and skirt along the Russian coastline. They would then reach where the Jeanette had been frozen in the ice, just from the opposite direction. That sounds logical, but I want to point out that only one ship had ever sailed that far east along the coast. That was the Vega under Adolf Nordenskjöld, who was the first person to complete the Northeast Passage, which we discussed previously. Anyhow, the idea was a good one, as long as the Fram could make it that far east, which wasn't a given as the ice was hard to predict. The ship would then make its way north and let itself get frozen in, and then they would wait. With luck, the drift would take the ship close to the North Pole. Just how close was a great question. No one knew for sure. No matter, Nansen was pretty sure he would have to get out onto the ice and make a crossing at some point. For that, he would bring along sledge dogs. The idea was that Nansen would use skis and dogs to make the dash to the pole. The ship would continue to float along with the drift, hopefully breaking out of the ice around Spitsbergen. As for Nansen and anyone else on the North Pole trek, well, once they turned around, they would have to cross the frozen ice to land, likely the collection of islands called Franz Joseph Land. From there, they would make their way to Spitsbergen, which was frequented by whaling and fishing vessels. So that was the plan. The theories behind it all were sound, but they were still just theories. As I said, most people thought Nansen was a bit crazy to try such a thing, but as we have seen, the guy never lacked confidence. So Nansen would thus have to outfit his expedition and assemble his team. As with the Greenland expedition, he scoured through books and journals and tried to discern all he could from previous expeditions, anything for an edge. One of my favorite stories involved American polar explorer Robert Perry. If you recall, Perry had initially planned on crossing Greenland in 1888, but had been held up by the United States Navy with surveying work in Central America. 
Nansen had used that delay to launch his own expedition and steal Perry's thunder. While Perry was more than a little upset by Nansen's interloping on what he thought was his territory, he felt that since he had made an earlier reconnaissance mission, that gave him priority to do a crossing. That aside, Perry would eventually return to Greenland in 1891 and make a rather epic crossing much further north than Nansen's route. Perry would go across Greenland and back, traveling four times longer than Nansen. It was really quite amazing. And while everyone would praise Perry for what he had done, it stung that it was Nansen whose name was in the record book. Now, Perry had used dogs successfully on the crossing. Nansen would thus write to the man and ask him a bunch of questions about the experience. What had he thought of the dogs? What sledges had he used? What kind of food? That sort of thing. Perhaps it was a bit cheeky to go ask the guy who had just bested for advice, but it might have been that Nansen was oblivious to such niceties and traditions. Anyhow, Perry would ultimately respond, but he was clearly not thrilled. In his biography of Nansen, Roland Hunford wrote this, quote, Perry eventually replied that he stuck to pemmican as his staple diet, and that his sledge was based on Nansen's model. His letter was curt and reserved. He saw Nansen as a deadly rival. He was consumed by resentment towards those who, as he considered, had forestalled him in his first crossing of Greenland and robbed him of his rightful due. End quote. By the way, Perry had his own designs on the North Pole and would ultimately claim the prize, but not for another decade and a half, and not without controversy. In the end, Nansen would work hard outfitting the expedition. As before, this was critical to him. He would pick and test the food, the clothing, the gear, pretty much everything. He actually loved the planning part of the expedition. He tested the rifles and guns and ammunition. He tried out all sorts of food options. For skis, he abandoned the Telemark style, as he felt it was more for downhill skiing. He would ultimately bring 50 different kinds of skis to test on the ice cap. One fun thing was chocolate. In his book on the Greenland expedition, Nansen had written how wonderful the chocolate was that they had taken. It had been a great treat any time it was eaten by the men. Well, the chocolate he had brought was made by Cadbury in England. The company was so thrilled by Nansen's poetic descriptions of their product, they gave him all that he requested for free. One other item I want to mention, as it is very important to this and future polar expeditions, was the Primus stove. The Primus had only been invented in 1892 by a Stockholm mechanic. It was, to be honest, revolutionary. It would be the first portable stove to efficiently burn liquid fuel, paraffin, and produce an intense heat. It was five to six times better than anything else on the market. It was light, compact, and portable, practically a miracle. It will be a staple on polar expeditions in the future, and Nansen was the first explorer to use it. And so, as the ship and supplies and gear was put together, Nansen would have to settle on a team. The ship would have a crew of 12. All would be men and Norwegians. Well, not quite all Norwegians, but we'll get to that in a moment. As second-in-command to Nansen, there was no question. It would be Otto Svedrup, his loyal and dependable deputy from the Greenland expedition. He was the one man Nansen insisted on being on the team. Svedrup had gotten married in 1891 and was hesitant about going, but Nansen agreed to have the man's wife taken care of financially if he didn't return. With that, Svedrup was on board. Some other key team members included Theodore Jacobson, who was an Arctic veteran who would be the ship's first officer. And then there was Seeger Hansen, a naval lieutenant, who would conduct scientific observations. Henrik Blessing was the ship's doctor, and Jalmar Johansen, an army reservist, was the dog handler. Johansen will be very important to our story later on. One of the men, second engineer Lars Peterson, would turn out to be Swedish. Once his nationality was discovered, he was allowed to stay, the only non-Norwegian on the expedition. 
Now, the list of people not brought on the expedition is interesting. This included 20-year-old Roald Amundsen, the first person to reach the South Pole. He had applied, but his mother had stepped in and stopped her son from going. Another fascinating person was English explorer Frederick Jackson. Now, Jackson would be turned down because he was not Norwegian, but remember him, because he was so keen to be part of a polar expedition, he would go off and organize his own enterprise. And he will pop up later in our story, so again, don't forget him. And finally, two men turned down for the expedition included the Sami from the Greenland expedition, Samuel Bautu and Ole Nielsen Ravna. Neither had the skill set needed for the journey, and in the case of Ravna, was too old. I do want to note that Nansen's team will, for a variety of reasons, change right up to the point of departing the last port in Norway. We will talk about that when it happens. Now, I want to stress that all that I'm talking about, getting provisions and gear, hiring the team, building the ship, it was all happening at the same time over the course of 1891 through 1893. And that takes us back to Nansen's ship. The Fram would be launched in Lavik on October 6, 1892. Nansen's wife, Eva, would do the christening. The ship would be towed to Christiania, about 75 miles, or 120 kilometers, away. There, it would be fitted and ready for sale. All the preparations would be completed by April of 1893, and the first trials at sea went well. The ship could make seven knots, and was highly maneuverable. The round design did cause the ship to roll uncomfortably when in open sea, but that was an acceptable trade-off. All in all, Colin Archer's design and build had been outstanding, and everyone was thrilled with the results. And so Nansen and his crew prepared to set off on their epic journey. However, two issues would arise. The first was money. The expedition was over budget. The price had risen from 300,000 krona to almost 450,000. This would cause a bit of a scramble right before launch. Ultimately, the Norwegian government would pony up 80,000 more, and the rest would be raised from private sources. Oscar II, the king of Sweden and Norway, would donate 20,000 krona and visit the Fram while in Christiania. This and other donors would step up, alleviating the issue, but not until the last minute. The other problem was the dogs. Nansen had had difficulties obtaining sled dogs. He would ultimately settle on getting them from Russia. However, they had not arrived in Christiania and would instead have to be picked up on the Siberian coast. In fact, Nansen's contacts had arranged for two groups of dogs to rendezvous with the ship. Extra dogs were never a bad thing. All of this was troubling as it was something out of Nansen's control, and the dogs were an important part of his plan. He would just have to trust that everything would work out well. So that gets us up to June of 1893 as the Fram prepared to depart Christiania. For the 32-year-old Nansen, leaving now was a troubling proposition. His wife, Ava, had given birth to a baby, a girl, in January of that year. The idea of leaving his wife and infant daughter was almost unbearable. It put him in a dark mood much of the time. But there was not much that could be done about things at this point. The ship was ready. The men were ready. As a reminder, the ship would sail up the Norwegian coast and push toward Russia. The good part about this is that there were ports all along the coast, which meant they weren't quite heading off alone, at least not yet. On June 24, 1893, the Fram departed from Christiania. The ship would stop at Bergen for a spell before continuing up the coast. In reality, this part of the voyage was one long, drawn-out farewell. Fromm would stop at various ports, each town celebrating their brave native sons as they headed out into the wild. On July 12th, the ship would reach Tromsø, a key port on the northern tip of Norway. It was a major center for whaling and sealing ships. A few things would happen here. First, some last-minute gear and supplies would be brought on board. 
This included boots, sleeping bags, and other clothing made by the Sami people, much of it from reindeer fur. Second, anyone on board not heading into the Arctic waters would depart. This included someone I have not mentioned in today's episode, and that is Christian Christensen, who had been on the Greenland expedition. Nansen had wanted Christensen, a dependable man, on this upcoming endeavor. And Christensen had seriously considered the offer and had traveled to Tromsø, still undecided as to what he was going to do. The idea of spending three or four years away from his home was not attractive, but the clincher was when he met with Nansen and spent some time with him and the team. Christensen realized that he could not endure years under Nansen's command. Nansen's inability to relate to others, especially men, was just too great an obstacle. He would thus pass on the offer, which stung Nansen, who had been counting on Christensen to be a reliable and dependable part of the team. The final item was that Nansen would have to add a couple of replacement crew members, including one to take Christensen's place. So, with things filled up, Nansen decided to leave Tromsø on the morning of July 14th, but he would have to delay departure for half a day because the men had went out the night before and got roaring drunk. On July 18th, the ship would reach Vardo, the last port of call in Norwegian territory, and the final bit of civilization on their itinerary. Nansen would get a telegram from his wife at the last moment. He would write her back saying, quote, I kiss it and you a thousand times, and depart thinking of you with bright, cheerful thoughts. End quote. But honestly, bright, cheerful thoughts were not easy for Nansen. He knew he would not see his wife for several years, and he had an irrational fear that Ava would die while he was at sea. That thought put him in a dark frame of mind. Anyhow, the locals would give the men a big farewell party, but the men would, again, get wildly drunk. This forced the ship to delay their departure by another half day. Once out at sea, Nansen unloaded on his crew. He never liked drinking that much, and he was furious at the men's behavior of the past few days. And it wasn't just the getting drunk part. It was delaying the ship's departure, twice, and some of the men, while drunk, had stolen beer and food from the ship's stores. The rebuke was an unusually harsh one. The men were heading out into the ice, preparing for being away for years from their family and friends, not to mention risking their lives. That they went off as they did should not have been unexpected. Nansen's fury may have been related to the pressure of getting Fram underway, and the anxiety of leaving behind his wife and young daughter. It put everyone on edge, and it was a sign of things to come. The truth is that Nansen understood little about these men, and they didn't understand much about him either. He was a self-righteous, argumentative, prickly jerk who thought he was better than all of them. Of course they disliked him. Anyhow, we will explore the relationship between Nansen and the crew in our next episode. And so, the Fram was underway on what would be a milestone voyage of polar exploration. The next step was to reach Siberia and pick up the dogs. After that, it was north into the Arctic Ocean, where the Fram would be frozen in for a very long time. So that is it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I want to say thank you to everyone who supports the show. Your contributions help make the Explorers podcast a reality. I want to thank our upper-tier patrons, including Dave, Donnell, Fleur, Eric, Jesse, Robert, Rudy, Adam, Elizabeth, Andrew, Benjamin, Cameron, Catherine, Christopher, Collier, Craig, David, Michael, Eamon, Eileen, George, Gregory, Peter, Philip, Ralph, and all the rest of our patrons and donors. Thank you so very much. If you are interested in helping out the show financially, please visit explorespodcast.com. Otherwise, thanks again for listening. Please join us next time for part four in our series on Friedrich Nansen. I will see you then. Please take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other cool podcasts, including the Daily Meditation Podcast and The Constant.